Hello, I'm Vicki Lawson. And I'm Sarah Elwood. We're the co-directors of the Relational Poverty Network, which is a collaboration among over 500 scholar activists and educators working on questions of impoverishment in the broadest sense. The network convenes conversations amongst people working in very different places around the globe in order to trouble taken for granted ideas about who is poor and why. And this podcast, titled New Poverty Politics for Changing Times, brings you a series of conversations between poverty scholars, activists, and educators. They think about how to keep questions of poverty and inequality front and center at a time when poverty is not part of the national conversation nearly enough. A foundational premise of the work is that poverty is always produced in relation to privilege and produced through multiple intersecting injustices. It's our hope that these conversations prompt you to think hard about questions of impoverishment and to collaborate with people who are working hard on these issues. Thanks for listening. My name is Sam Nowak. I'm a PhD student uh, at UCLA in the Department of Geography. My work is broadly on political economy of transportation in Jakarta and Los Angeles. I'm here talking with Catherine Hankins, professor and interim chair of the Department of Geosciences at Georgia State University. And our topic today is New Poverty Politics for Changing Times what emerging nationalist populisms mean for poverty and inequality. And we're just going to jump right in. What are priority research topics on impoverishment and inequality in this moment? What do you think? So I, I, I might confuse here what I think priority research topics should be mm-hmm. um, versus what they are. So mm-hmm. I, I might have some illusion on that. Yeah, um, I think that's an incisive distinction. Certainly, I I think we need to understand, of course, um, new emerging patterns of inequality and impoverishment. I think one of the most compelling um, research areas I would love to see more of, or I, I see as emergent, would be the, the ways in which knowledge about impoverishment is produced and mm-hmm. reproduced, mm-hmm. Um, and about how poverty more broadly works. Um, and obviously this is part of what this network is, is doing, is I think, is drawing attention to clearly the relationality of poverty. Um, but I think it is alarming to read the news every day, for example, to read the proposed tax plans um, and to, to see an absence of burning in the streets, yeah. right? Like, what do people understand about how poverty and inequality is produced? Um, why don't we see burning in the streets? Yeah, isn't that the title of Michael B. Cass's last book, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, I, I mean, I feel like we miss him a lot in this moment, particularly in regards to that question, right? Like, how do we think about 
the way that poverty knowledge is produced um, in this moment. I feel like Michael Katz is somebody who would have a lot of incisive things to say about that. And what are your what are your thoughts about the priority research topics? I think you're right to distinguish between what they currently are and maybe what they should be or could be for this moment. I mean, to speak a little bit to the latter, I think in geography especially, we're in desperate need of more research and work on understanding the relationship between um, kind of racial dominance and racial oppression and poverty, especially in this country, but of course all over the world. I think there's an interesting and important trend in geography of um, people looking and drawing upon the black radical tradition to analyze, you know, the current staggering levels of inequality in this country. Um, and that's something I think is actually incredibly important to understanding this moment is the intersection of um, kind of racialized dominance and economic inequality. I mean, not that there's not a long, incredibly long history of under, trying to understand those intersections, but particularly right now, that feels like a pressing need. Absolutely. Um, I think sometimes geographers in particular cycle through new, new theoretical insights mm -hmm. so quickly. Um, and I, I think sometimes we move, we move too fast mm -hmm. um, in trying to maybe say the same thing in a different way. Yeah. Um, but I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean, we are in a moment, absolutely, of seeing the, in, in, I mean, witnessing the incredible violence against black bodies, which has been ongoing for mm -hmm. centuries. Mm -hmm. And now we have body cams, and now we have cell phones, and now we have this these sort of you know incredible and outrageous evidence um, that I, that I think it is yeah I mean we, we need to to keep beating the drum of, of racism and inequality mm -hmm. yeah. in legible ways, not in hard to read tomes. Um, I was always in my urban geography classes, you know, I talk about the 20th century housing policies um, around public housing and subsidized mortgages or, you know, the, the federal government um, insuring mortgages. Sure. Homeowners Loan Corporation, you know, redlining all of this. Yeah. And I talk about the, you know, entrenched patterns of, of inequality around housing, which obviously leads to inequality and in household wealth. And I recently went to a talk by Douglas Blackman, uh, who, re who received a Pulitzer Prize for Slavery by Another Name, mm -hmm. about the um, convict labor mm -hmm. of the early 1900s. Um, and it, to me, it drew the line from slavery and the economic exploitation and violence um, of slavery to the economic exploitation and violence of housing policy, you know, in the New Deal 
mm-hmm. and moving on. Mm-hmm. And like this period in between, the that was expressed in convict labor and in you know rules and laws that made it illegal to to be black. Mm-hmm. Um, that was then sort of taken into corporate exploitation. You know, I mean, you had these corporations buying convict labor, right? So, right. I mean, like, and we don't tell that story. Or I, it's, it isn't a story. We don't, we don't shout that history enough. Um, right. So. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree, and word. I think we need to not chew up and spit out. We need to keep. We need to keep saying. We need to keep using words. We need to keep working in our classrooms um, and and exposing sort of the long history and geography of racial and economic exploitation. Absolutely. Yeah. That question for me, you know, what are priority research topics on impoverishment in this moment? Um, it's partially a question about what this moment is even about, right? Like, as if this moment, we have, we have the words yet to describe what this moment is, which I'm not sure we do. Um, I've been reading a lot of Stuart Hall lately, um, and Doreen Massey kind of talking about this idea of the historical conjuncture. Like, what, what, what about this current moment politically, economically, socially, culturally, racially um, is significant? And why, like, are we transitioning into a different kind of arrangement of those things? Um, I think they, they speak of Stuart Hall in particular and... Um, kind of talks about a historical conjuncture as being both a moment of opportunity and also one of risk, right? Because these things are all in flux, but there's no telling which way it's going to emerge on the other side, um, whether it'll those dimensions will be rearranged towards a more just and equitable end or whether it will just re-entrench the existing inequalities that... Um, we currently operate under. Um, it's a bit of a, I guess, a bit of a tangent, but I think my point is to highlight that knowing what the priority research topics on impoverishment in this moment should be or are also requires work trying to understand and analyze and pull apart those different dimensions about what makes this moment unique. Does that make? Do you get what I'm saying there? Absolutely. We have Donald Trump in office. <laughs> we have Black Lives Matter. Yeah. We have sexual exploitation on the front page of the newspaper every day. Yeah. Right. Like we have these incredible openings. Yeah. At the same time, we have these oppressive closings. Right. Yeah. And absolutely. What? How? How do we even understand moment? I think that is an excellent question to ask. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess, I guess the question then for me becomes like, what is the significance of this moment for studying relational poverty or, or critical poverty? Like, what is important about studying relational poverty in this particular historical conjuncture? 
Um, I'm not sure we have any great answers to that necessarily, but it's worth pointing out. Um, I think there is something special and important about this moment. And I think I will say too, we need to not only be talking about research, but we need to be talking about mm-hmm. how we're transmitting our research, how we're communicating our research, how Absolutely. we're teaching our research. Absolutely. And because uh, that that to me is where where I have any optimism, if I have any optimism, hmm. is even uttering the words relational poverty and making people aware mm-hmm. in a public setting, right? Mm-hmm. That we need to understand poverty as a as a as a structural relational um, construct, not not an individual. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think that's a really good segue into the next question, um, which is, who should poverty researchers and teachers be collaborating with? I mean, I think you gave um, the start of a response, but I I would be curious to hear you elaborate kind of, um, yeah, multiple venues for thinking about dismantling teaching relational poverty. Who should we be collaborating with? Or, I mean, I guess there's even an, right. a, a backup question there is who is, who is we in, in the fir- first place? I, I think there are a lot of questions because I, I struggle sometimes also to understand, back to this moment question, what are the most effective ways mm-hmm. of, of communicating ideas sort of or across the academy and the public domain or within the academy, right? Right. For example, letters to the editor used to be an important forum for academics to engage in public discussions. Mm-hmm. Well, we have the blogosphere now. We have Twitter. We have social media that has changed our ability to transmit. Mm-hmm. In, again, perhaps in hopeful ways and perhaps into the, the noise of, you know, the, the, the lefty ivory tower. Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, again, to speak to the, the what's distinct about this moment, I mean, are op-eds even a useful forum anymore when the media is constantly derided as fake news? Like, I... I don't know. I mean, I think there's a temporal dimension to that too in that, you know, Twitter like if if we're conveying our research, our ideas, our understandings of poverty in through social media, you know, how how temporary or lasting is that versus, you know, kind of more like an op-ed or something. I think we've raised more questions at this point <laughs> than we've answered. That's fine. It's a dialogue, right? Well, I'll, I'll just say a short yeah. answer yeah, yeah. to who should poverty researchers be collaborating with. I think some of the answer is not just each other, Yeah. right? Yeah, of course. 
think or that's, that's not or that's not enough. I mean, absolutely, that's, that's important. And I think something that the Relational Poverty Network does well and has always been part of the original mission of the network is connecting um, different contexts and different understandings of poverty across the globe. Um, I mean, from the very start, this organization has been interested in um, networking and communicating different understandings um, from all over and putting those understandings of poverty in conversation with one another because relationally, of course, also means geographically, right? Um, different parts of the world are connected relationally and geographically in ways that can shape socio-spatial inequalities all over. Um, so, yes, important to be talking to each other, but also, of course, also important to be um, expanding that dialogue to the communities that we are um, or should be at least invested in. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. And it, it takes energy and it takes time and it, it takes does. not being in our offices. It takes yeah. showing up. Yeah. Um, and showing up repeatedly. I mean, this is something yes. that we've talked about a lot over the years. Um, there's a, there's a long-term commitment that is necessary and I think especially important for us as you know, critical poverty scholars to be invested in long-term relationships as to not reinforce the kind of extractive model of knowledge production about poverty. I mean, I think to actually be effective and to be thinking relationally about poverty is also a methodological commitment to, I think, long-term showing up, in your words. It is, and it's strikingly um, antithetical to how so many universities and the incentive structure of mm -hmm. the academy actually operate, right? Yeah. Um, in terms of spending two years in a postdoc somewhere or, you know, totally. a, 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 your first job is a three years as an assistant professor before you move on. And I think it, I mean, for me personally, remaining in place and developing long-term relationships has been a key part of how I want to not just do my research, but do my research and my teaching and my sort of everyday life. Yeah, um, your, your politics of everyday life, right? My, my quiet politics, <laughs> yes. Well, this is, I mean, this is, a, this is a bit of a tangent also, but I mean, to pick up on that term, quiet politics, um, I guess it would be interesting to, to hear or to have a dialogue about quiet politics in these times. Um, I mean, much of your work has focused on kind of making an argument for the idea that micro-political practices, while not as spectacular as public protests or, you know, shutting down a freeway or something, are kind of nonetheless capable of um, quietly and incrementally changing hegemonic norms and, you know, changing social conditions. And I guess I would be interested to hear you reflect on, um, I guess, maybe the utility 
and and or importance of this idea of quiet politics in this current moment um i guess the question is like within a context of the way in which the trump presidency has been normalized like do you think quiet politics are enough or do you think they're more important than ever or do we need kind of more radical disruptive political practices right now i think we need all of it <laughs> I, I think i mean my comment was why isn't there burning in the streets i mean yeah there's uh, there's a lot of you know passion and in, in terms of how i teach my my critical urban geography class right like that's part of my everyday mm -hmm. um, or my quiet politics mm -hmm. um yeah, that's that's a really good question I, I think really really both I think I think we do need these sort of you know massive marches in the streets um, and I think we need to make decisions in an everyday way to to resist and reject mm -hmm. the kind of um, racist and exploitative relations that um, dominate our, our society yeah, I mean it's it's a false dichotomy, right? I'm I'm framing it in terms of a you know either or, but it's of course both and question. I mean, I guess we do need we of course need both. Um, yeah, I mean, no need to continue to riff on that if you don't feel like it's no. I I think well, okay, so I it, it's Geography Awareness Week. And the theme this year is is civil rights and you know geography and civil rights. And I participated in a forum um, on Monday evening at Kennesaw State. Um, it was a very well done, you know, gathering of people and talk about research. And the audience wanted to know what organization they could join. How to you know how to what housing justice right. group could they participate in? And at that moment, I have to say, my quiet politics argument wasn't as, as compelling, I think, mm -hmm. um, in terms of having this sense of, of viscerally participating in something larger, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I still hold that we make, you know, we do make so many small everyday decisions that I, I think do collectively matter. Yeah, absolutely. You won't be surprised to hear that I agree with you on that. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think that that actually is a pretty good segue again into the next question, which is what are prior priority actions that we as critical poverty scholars should be taking to resist these exclusionary trends? Um, by which I mean, I, I interpret that to mean kind of 
new and heightened punitive policing policies, um, kind of the burgeoning and of hate groups and um, kind of new public attacks from these groups, um, you know, racist bordering practices against undocumented and so on. What what should should be actions that we are taking right now? I, I mean, I think we I think we're, we're we keep getting ahead of ourselves. We you know we are kind of talking about that in terms of protests and quiet politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we also need to to follow the the playbook of some of the you know conservative neoliberals who have have been systematically mm-hmm. developing policies and think tanks and very boring mm-hmm. incremental changes to you know policy briefs and yeah. talking points and all of these things in a, in a very organized long sustained way I mean I, I think that needs to be part of our project as geographers is is to pay attention to things like the curriculum of the core curriculum at the university level and get geography in there. Yeah. Um, you know, pay attention to teaching geography in K through 12, get it in there, right? Get, get in the kind of thinking that we want our citizenry to know. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and so that, that's a sort of mundane stuff that I think doesn't always feel as important as a march or a, a grassroots organization, but I, I think there's yeah, I mean, those are important lines to to pay attention to. Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, not to draw an equivalency necessarily, but I mean, I think there is an argument to be made that those two things are are both, or those two different types of political practices are are both important. And I, I think that I think your answer to that you know, speaks back to our earlier discussion on historical conjunctures being kind of both a moment of opportunity and also one of risk. I mean, without that, without that, those everyday actions, without putting, you know, geography curriculum in K through 12 and doing that better, like the conjuncture then becomes one more of of risk if you if you know what i mean like because there's nothing saying that in that moment of crisis or in that moment of radical change that those ideas then get picked up um and and used and to build something you know more just i guess do you know what i'm saying Yes. Yeah. Um, Persistence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Details. <laughs> I think I think these are important. Yeah. In terms of broadcasting and disseminating a, an understanding of relational poverty. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think priority keywords for critical poverty studies are in this moment? I mean, if I had to analyze what we have just been discussing, mm-hmm. I would say relational poverty. 
Yeah, I mean... I would say resistance. I would say... I'd say quiet politics. Mm-hmm. I would say... I mean, I would add relational place. Can you speak more to that? Or why is yeah. relational place an important keyword for critical poverty studies? It could be as an object of, or as a, as a method of communicating what's at the heart of, of relational poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that again, I'm sort of drawing from some of the, you know, a conversation I had in my class the other day about connecting places of affluence, the high, glittering high rise of midtown Atlanta with the disinvested, mm-hmm. bombed out, right. racialized neighborhood of Vine City. Right. Um, and having people make connections between those places. Yeah. In terms of, of the extraction of wealth. And that is a, a visceral, a visible, an experiential versus asking someone to connect to a person or an, a type of person they they may not encounter or may not understand or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean um, it's I think your answer gets to why relational poverty studies is also geographical right um, so Vicki and Sarah and Eric Shepard wrote this great paper called um geographical relational poverty studies kind of taking a geographical lens to analyze what we even mean when we're talking about relation re- relational poverty anyways you know what what does what does it mean for poverty to be relational and one of the things that they talk about is i think what you just described is kind of using a geographical lens to understand the relationships between the production of of the relational production of inequality across places, um, understanding how Buckhead is connected to South Atlanta um, analytically. And, I mean, this goes all the way back to uneven uneven geographical development for me. Um, but I think it's an important important intervention to to not just think about you know, relational poverty studies because relational very easily becomes kind of this empty signifier. What is what does relational mean, anyways? But I think one way that that becomes really important is is through geography. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's uh, an important point to be made. I guess. What What about for you? What are priority keywords in in your view? Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think this is, of course, influenced by what I've been reading lately. Um, but again, I think I'll, I'll I'll go back to the question of what this moment even means. You know, that question is phrased in such a way as to where we're taking for granted what this moment is even about. Um, and I think that is... There's so much, so much work, so much good work to understand um, what we mean by in this moment. What is what is this moment? What is this conjuncture that we live in? And how are different relations of 
economy and culture and society and race and um, politics changing right now and, and it all feels very much in flux and I think so Stuart Hall wrote this book great book uh, with colleagues um, called Policing the Crisis published 1978 and you know what's so interesting about that analysis to me is that arguably this collaborative book kind of predicted the rise of Thatcherism in in Britain at the time. Um, they were analyzing kind of the rise of the law and order state in the UK and the way in which um, these these young uh, immigrant youths were kind of scapegoated for a lot of the cultural anxieties around moral panics in the UK. I mean, it's an incredible book, uh, but I, I bring it up because what it does is this, they call it kind of a conjunctural analysis in that they are trying to understand the different political and economic and racial forces, relations of forces that are coming together to define that sense of crisis in the late 1970s. Um, and I think, I think we're in a similar moment now, and I, I feel like I really miss Stuart Hall and Doreen Massey to understand this current moment. So that's a very roundabout way of, of answering your question. I think an important keyword for this moment is historical conjuncture. What is the historical conjuncture that we are in right now? Because in order to understand what's an important keyword for right now, we have to understand what right now means. I guess that would be a long answer to your question. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. I think that's kind of what we have to cover. Do you have closing thoughts on new poverty politics for changing times? Um, I think we need to broaden this network. Hmm. Um, I think this very project, our discussion, I understand to be part of that effort. And I think that's one of the many steps we need to take. I agree. <laughs>